Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we will be continuing on in the series of our Advent. The name of the series is called Behold Your King. The name of the sermon is called Rejoice. And Pastor David will be preaching from Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Let's join Pastor David now. God come for us. So if you have access to scripture, please meet me in Zechariah chapter 9. We'll be looking at two verses today. Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 and 10. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Where in the world is Zechariah? Uh, If you're new to the study of Bible, or it's a a tricky book to find, it's toward the end of the Old Testament, second to last. If you find yourself in the book of Matthew, go two books to the left, and you'll find yourself uh, in the book of Zechariah. Today we're looking at uh, chapter 9, verses 9 and verse 10. Let me read it for us before we continue. Zechariah 9, starting at verse 9, God's word says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, I will, and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river uh, to the ends of the earth. This is what God's word says. Let's pray before we go any further. Lord, as we look now at your word, we ask that you would shape us, craft us, mold us into the image of your son. Give us a sense of the magnitude As we've already declared through song, as we've been reminded uh, through our worship leader today that our attention and focus would be on you, uh, the Lamb of God, uh, the prophet prophet like Moses that we've been waiting for, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Lord, so we ask that your word would help direct our hearts heavenward that your word would help tune our hearts to a place of worship and joy that we find in you. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen and amen. Well, this is the Sunday in Advent that we are focusing on joy, the joy that Christ brings uh, to all the world and certainly to us here today. And have you ever had uh, times or a time in your life where you were discouraged or troubled or going through difficulty or challenges, and someone who was well-meaning, who cared about you, and who really wanted the best for you, tried to encourage you, but it fell flat, ever had that moment? Sometimes it might sound like, um, like this. I don't think that many people saw you fall. <laughs> or, uh, well, at least you have a participation pin. Or, uh, You're still a winner in my eyes. You know, those moments where, uh, (laughs) thank you. Um, Times where you were discouraged or something didn't go the way you wanted it to go or whatever, you're down, you're blue, you're discouraged. And the heart is great and and they care for you, but sometimes if the reason to rejoice if the reason for joy does not, does not outweigh the discouragement or the challenge, sometimes it can fall flat, can it? 
It can fall on deaf ears. It can fall on a wanting heart that needs more depth, more reason to celebrate, more reason for joy. Well, Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verse 9, starts by saying, Rejoice! <laughs> Shout aloud! Celebrate! Be filled with an overwhelming sense of joy and happiness and reason for celebration. Look at what it says. The first uh, sentence, the first two sentences of verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is speaking to God's people, Israel. Rejoice greatly and shout aloud. And these words are coming to God's people, Israel, at a very unique moment in Israel's history. The book of Zechariah, this prophet, is speaking after the exile. If you've been with us for the past several months, we've been, we had been going through the book of Micah. That took place before the exile. So the exile was something future, something that God's people were, um, in a unique way, uh, yet to have experienced. Zechariah, on the other hand, speaks on the other side of exile. God's people have returned. They're returning from exile, but they're returning to a challenging season nonetheless. God's people at this moment in redemptive history are returning to a time of high taxes. They're returning to a time of, of difficulty and challenge. They're returning to a season where the rebuilding of the temple is slow and it's stalled. And to an Old Testament reader, that's a big deal. Because remember, in the Old Testament, if someone walked up to you and, and you were an Old Testament believer, uh, they would say, where is your God? Where do we meet your God? And we would appoint it to the tabernacle, to the temple. That's the place where God descends and meets with his people. So if that temple is not rebuilt, that's a, that's a deep sense of discouragement. That's where, that's where God meets with us. And it's not yet rebuilt. Earlier in the book of Zechariah, this day, this season, this time is described as a day of small things. How's that for an inspirational phrase? In some ways, if God's people were a sports team, in the book of Zechariah, their mascot would be Eeyore. Try not to lose. Someone, you know, I think we can do it well. Don't be too sure. It was a hard time during the life of God's people at this moment of history. And yet God says, rejoice, shout aloud, celebrate, be filled with joy. And though we are removed by time and those circumstances are certainly different from what God's people were experiencing in the book of Zechariah, we know what that feels like, doesn't, don't we? Times of discouragement. We know what it feels like to be under economic pressure. Perhaps for some of you during this season, that which is flowing in is, does not exceed that which has to go out. Perhaps some of you are in between jobs, in kind of this, the nomadic experience of having a stable job behind you, but not yet really having something stable in front of you. Some of you might be uh, having to dip into categories or, or uh, parts of your budget or accounts that you wish you didn't have to dip into, but this season requires it. And we all know kind of the, the, the low-grade tension that can cause, the low-grade anxiety that can cause. For some of you to say that things have been tight in this season is a little bit of an understatement. God's people in this time were facing pressures for different reasons, but pressures nonetheless, financially. 
We know what it feels like to struggle with either loneliness or anxiety or fear or discouragement or perhaps the isolation initially was uh, something that was unique and what unique became a challenge, what challenge became a burden, the burden became deeply, deeply discouraging. We all know what it's like for society to look around and to long for something to grasp onto, to long for hope and encouragement. Perhaps stress rising in our lives. Perhaps your homes have been uh, uh, completely reimagined, not just as a place to eat and to relax, but now a place where your office is in this corner of the house and your children's, uh, perhaps children or many children are doing online learning and everyone's kind of in everyone's space and it's hard to mentally get shut off from work and start relaxing and this season can be hard. It is hard. And in the middle of this season, God says, Rejoice, shout aloud, celebrate. And there's a natural tendency of the heart to ask, why? Why? Maybe not even out of kind of cynical defiance, you know, kind of why, you know, kind of dare, I dare you to get me to rejoice. Maybe not even out of that heart, but, but a deep sense of the human heart that realizes, man, if I'm going to turn my heart to joy, I need to know I need to know that the reason to rejoice outweighs the discouragement, outweighs the difficulty, because if it doesn't, I'm going to set myself for, uh, for another discouragement, another season of difficulty, a unique wave of challenge. And God's word says, rejoice, rejoice. We don't rejoice for difficult seasons. We rejoice in difficult seasons. And in this season, this Advent season, the Christmas season, uh, it's a season full of things that uh, try to stir our hearts to joy. It's full of seasons of uh, twinkling lights and light bulbs and the sweet, smooth, buttery sounds of Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and all the other voices that remind us of the, the happiness and joy of this season. But as we've probably all discovered, certainly in 2020, we need a source of joy that goes much deeper, much deeper than twinkling lights. As much as I love them, and I do love them, they're at my house. We even got a train that goes around our tree this year. <laughs> as much fun and joy that that brings, you and I know we need something deeper. We need something that goes soul deep. We need something that's going to be more than just a Band-Aid, more than just an aspirin to help subdue the symptoms of the difficulty that we're facing. We need a reason for joy that goes all the way down, that outroots all the discouragement in our hearts and in our souls. We need a drastic turn of things for the better. Some of you, perhaps many of you, certainly know the name J.R.R. Tolkien the uh, author, the brilliant mind and author behind The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy and other works as well, he coined a term called eucatastrophe. We all know what catastrophe means. It's a sudden turn of things for the worse. Eucatastrophe, E-U at the beginning of the word, is a sudden turn of things for the better. When all is discouraged, when all is dark, a sudden light when all other lights go out, that a new day will shine, and when it shines, it will shine the clearer. Moments like that where there's a sudden turn of things for the better. Now, this can be seen certainly in Tolkien's work, but it's seen all throughout story, all throughout literature, all throughout art. 
These are the moments in the story, right, when, uh, when Prince Charming gives Sleeping Beauty the kiss of life. The curse is lifted off the kingdom, and she is woken back up. This is the moment where the princess kisses the frog, right? And he turns back from a frog into a prince. These are moments like when your team is down by two points. Got a few seconds left on the clock. You look to your left, and Michael Jordan's wide open for a three. <laughs> Sudden turn of things for the better. These are moments, other parts in story and art, where the scene changes, and Dory finds her parents... Remember that moment? And she sees all the seashells that they've laid out longing for her return, the sudden turn of things for the better. This is where Luke Skywalker, remember the moment? Computer comes up, your navigation system's off. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong, he says. He uses the force, directs his bullets into the heart of the Death Star, sudden turn of things. You th Man, this guy watches a lot of TV. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm drawn from abroad. Anyway, so let's carry on. <laughs> A moment in The Hobbit itself, <laughs> Tolkien's work, just one more example. Uh, remember the moment, this is in the book, Bilbo reflecting, and he says, it will not be long now, thought Bilbo, before the goblins win the gate and we are all slaughtered or driven down and captured. Really, it's enough to make one weep after all one has gone through. I would rather old Smog had been left with all the wretched treasure than these vile creatures should get it. And poor old Bombor and Balin and Feely and Keely and the rest have come to a bad end. And Bard too, and the Lake Men and the Merry Elves. Misery me, Bilbo says. I have heard songs of many battles and I have always understood that defeat may be glorious. It seems very uncomfortable. Not to say distressing. I wish I was well out of it. This dark moment in this story. But then listen. The clouds were torn by the wind and a red sunset slashed the west. Seeing the sun, sudden gleam in the gloom, Bilbo looked around. Having a great cry, he had seen the sight that made his heart leap. Dark shapes, yet small and majestic against the distant glow. And he shouts, the eagles, the eagles, he shouts, the eagles are coming. And this is a moment in the book, as is exemplified a couple times in the films, when uh, this idea in Tolkien's mind... The eagles embody this idea of a sudden turn of things for the better, a reason to rejoice that outweighs the difficulty that the characters face. Now, brother and sister in Christ, I am so glad, aren't you glad, we have more reason to rejoice than eagles on a horizon. We have a reason to rejoice in seasons like this and in this season because our king has come. Our king has come to save. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of creation, the God who designed it all, the God who knows you and I, who designed you. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows your personality. He knows, he knows what makes you laugh, what makes you cry, what makes you anxious. He knows what's coming in your future. He knows what's happened in your past. He is the God of all power and all might, and he has come. He's come. He's come for you and for me, and he's come to save. Look at what it says, that second half of verse 9. Let me read the whole verse, actually, again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, see, look, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, 
And we see in this moment a little snapshot of the true and ultimate, right? A sudden turn of things for the better. When all was discouraged, when all was dark, when it was a day where the Eeyores of the world fit in very well, God's word says, rejoice, shout aloud. Why? Because your king has come to save. He's come to save. And there's a, there's a reason there's a reason in all these stories, in all these moments in film or literature or whatever, there's a reason why they're so moving when the hero enters the scene, when, when, when backup is on its way. There's a reason that you and I, the human heart, we just soak those moments up. Do you want to know why it's so powerful? It's because it's a glimpse of the real and true and ultimate story. Did you know that you are a part of a cosmic story with a beginning and a middle and an end where there's good versus evil and good will triumph, where there's heroes and villains and God will see his people through. The reason all these stories are so moving to us is because they point to the real story. They're shadows of the ultimate story that J.R.R. Tolkien himself said that the incarnation, the coming of Christ, is the catastrophe of human history. Appreciate that, see that, recognize that. The entire story of the Bible, right? It all started good. We were with God, perfect harmony with each other. Evil enters the scene, sin enters the scene. Everything breaks down. And through the entire Old Testament, we've been waiting, we've been longing for the descendant who will crush Satan's head, as it says in Genesis chapter 3. We've been waiting and longing for the prophet like Moses, the king from the line of David. We've been waiting for the full and real and true Passover lamb who will take away the sin of the world. We're waiting for the true Israel. We're waiting for the tabernacle, the temple embodied himself to come with us to save and to redeem and to adopt his people back to himself. We've been waiting and longing for that. And then out of these silent nights, the cry of a baby's voice. After, catch this, after 400 years of prophetic silence, the time between the Old and the New Testament, 400 years of prophetic silence. And all of a sudden, God is born. Jesus Christ himself God come to us, divinity in humanity, power in weakness. He's come for you and he's come for me. And if there ever was a sudden turn of things for the better, that goes all the way to the depths of our soul, that kind of encouragement that we need, it is in the person of Jesus Christ. He's come for you and he's come for me. Tolkien says elsewhere that if the incarnation is the catastrophe of human history, the resurrection is the catastrophe of the incarnation. That we see all these sudden turns of things for the better, that Christ himself, one of the beautiful truths of the gospel is that the cross is empty. The tomb is empty. That in the darkest moment, it doesn't end dark. It ends in, with a good ending, a happy ending. Did you know that that's, that's not just pie in the sky? That's not just religious platitudes. That's not a band-aid. This is true. He's come for us, and he's come to save. And look at what it says in that verse 9. Behold, behold, see, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. 
And this indicates, these words are beautiful, this idea, having salvation. The language here communicates this idea that our king is endowed with salvation itself, himself. As I've said before, even from this pulpit, that salvation is not something outside of Christ that he gives to us. He himself is salvation. Salvation is not something, it's someone, and it's him. That to have a relationship with God, to be united to Christ, is to be saved. That by faith we are connected to him, that he himself is our only hope. He's our only savior. And he came in humility, and his entire life was marked by humility. Imagine this. And we say this often every single year, but it's worth being said over and over and over again. I don't think we can truly plumb the depths of how beautiful and profound this truth is. The king of all existence is born and laid in a place where animals eat. See the humble nature of a God that would do that. God designed the tree that grew, that was cut, that built the manger. He designed the food that would go in it. He designed the animals that would eat from it. And here we have the king of creation laid as a newborn child in a place where animals eat. It, the story starts humble. And it only gets more humble from there that a large part of Jesus' life here on earth is in essentially in utter obscurity. Born in an obscure place, in an obscure time, to no-name parents, to a, 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 a tiny, tiny crowd. There's no pomp and circumstance. This is not what we would expect the coming of a king to look like. It starts humbly, and it only gets more humble from there. That Jesus was homeless. Think of that. The, the one who designed it all. No place to lay his head. He, he lived a life of humility that ultimately ended on the cross. The most humble, shameful, and it was designed to be a shameful form of, of execution. That this was one of the ways that Rome said in biblical times, if you want to defy Rome, just take a look at the examples who have gone before. The God of creation strung up, crucified, nailed to a cross, naked as, as a shame and a spectacle for all those who are seeing in this profound moment when it looks like Satan has won. When all is dark, when all seems lost, we know that that's not how it ends. A sudden turn of things for the better. That, that cross is empty. He's laid in the tomb, and three days later, he rises again. He is now ascended and seated at the right hand of God, given the name that is above all names, that every knee should bow in heaven and earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, why in the world would God himself put himself through that? Why would God willingly choose to humble himself to the manger and humble himself to the cross? He did it to save, to seek and to save you and I we are so broken, we are so lost, that God himself had to come save us. He had to reach that low to come to save us. See how, see how much that makes us humble? But then see how much it shows us how much he cares. His love for you and I, that he would do that willingly to save us. He's come. 
And in many ways, in this season, we look backward on that, don't we? Um, it's a unique thing, isn't it, for New Testament believers, you and I, and for those of us on this side, well, we're all on this side of the cross, this side of the manger, we, we think about what it was like to anticipate that first coming. In many ways, that's a work of the imagination, right? Not that it's imaginary, but we imagine what was it like to wait for that first coming and to finally see his coming that he has come to save, and that would have been an incredible reason to rejoice. And that's what this passage is saying. Rejoice. Why? Because your king has come to save. He's a savior come for you and I. But there's another reason to rejoice that this passage shows us. Not only that he's our king come to save, but he is our king who is coming again to reign, to rule fully and finally, new heavens and new earth, all that is broken, undone. He will restore all things. He will make right every wrong. Your king is coming again, dear brother and sister in Christ, and he will rule and reign on that day. And that is also reason to rejoice. Look at what it says. Now, verse 10, God's word says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a global uh, reign and rule that our king will have. And as we think about this season of waiting, longing, that's what Advent means, this idea of this longing for the coming of someone profoundly important, <laughs> longing for the coming of our king. And as we, on this side of the cross, we imagine back what it would have felt like, what it would have been like to be Israel, to long, as is uh, indicated by the song, right? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. We imagine what that would have felt like. And if you've ever wondered, I wonder what that did feel like. I imagine it felt something a lot similar of what it feels like to wait for his second coming. That in this Advent season, we are in some ways waiting for two things. By imagination, his first coming, he's already come. But now you and I wait for his second coming. We know what that feels like. We know what it feels like to look out into the world and see brokenness. We know what it feels like to look in here into our own hearts and, and find brokenness. Propensities to temptation and sin, frustration with ourselves for the things that we do or the things that we see or the things that we say. Brokenness out there, the way that, that, that people treat one another, the way that people groups treat one another. The way that people relate to it, we see brokenness, and then we read a verse like this, where the chariots and the war horses, where the bows will be all cut off. These are all military terms. These are the, these are the tanks and, and the aircraft carriers of the ancient world. We read a verse that says, he shall speak peace to the nations. Peace. Perfect harmony, perfect wholeness, perfect well-being, perfect connection between God and his people and each other. So we see brokenness out there. We read about this piece in here and we realize, okay, this is not that. <laughs> We're not there yet. There's certainly much ground that has to be covered until what is described at his second coming is fully here now. So as we wait, we know the feeling between the sober 
brokenness and longing of the human heart for peace, for restoration. And we know what it feels like to look forward in confidence and hope that he's coming again. And you and I all, this is the Christian life. We ebb and flow sometimes, don't we? Some days we're so confident because of what God's word says that he's coming again. It almost feels like we're invincible, right? Other days we're overwhelmed by the brokenness that we see. This is a large part of why we do church, why we do life together to encourage one another, to spur each other on, to remind each other in discouraging times the truths that God's word gives us. This is why we're doing what we're doing even now to help stir our hearts to remember what is already true and what God is unfolding in human history. And we long for this day. And it begs the question, what, what, what is ultimately going to heal the world? What is going to bring peace? What is going to bring wholeness and well-being? Now, whether you're religious or not, everyone asks that question. Whether you state it so succinctly, that's, that's another matter. But we all, all of us, religious or not, Christian or not, we all seek to answer that question, what is going to heal the world? Is technology going to do it? Are we just waiting for a, for a new breakthrough that will finally and ultimately be a tool that ushers in peace and well-being? Is our ultimate hope held in the hands of people like uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and the Zuckerbergs and, and the Elon Musks of our time? Is our hope in Silicon Valley? Is our hope in the, in the technological advances that we see? Is, is the story of human history, man, this globe is disintegrating. So if, if we don't get to Mars real quick, we gotta, we're in a pickle. <laughs> We need to get a good shuttle, you know, to, to leave this earth and figure out how to heal things somewhere. Is that our ultimate hope? Is what's going to heal the world in the hands of public policymakers? Is it just every four-year cycle? We just need to really try to get the right set of people in or out of decision-making positions. Is that our ultimate hope? Is our ultimate hope in, in the general goodness of humanity that, it, that if we would finally just get along, everything would be better? If we finally would just do the right thing and, and, and be kind and good to one another, if we could only just muscle that, then finally things would be at peace. And friends, if you've been around Christian circles for a measure of your life, you know where I'm going with this. You know, you know, you're a pastor, David. We know what the answer is. We know what you're going to say. Of course it's not in technology. Of course it's not in public policy. Of course it's not in us. The answer is Jesus. Well, we, I learned that in Sunday school. The answer is always Jesus. Well, if you say that you're correct, you're correct. Our only hope, our true hope is in Jesus. But if we know that, if we know that, then why is it sometimes we don't know that? Why, why the anxiety? Why, why are we crippled by fear? Why is it, if, the, if it is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he ha alone has the power to save and restore and redeem, then why is it every four-year cycle we just go into a tailspin of anxiety? Why, are we, why do we die on hills that, don't need to die, that we don't need to die on? Why are we more confident about other things than we are in our confidence and understanding of the gospel and who God is? If, 
if I'm going to be burned at the stake, the list of things I will be burned at the stake for is very short. And it's Jesus. That if there's any hill that I would be willing to die on, it would be the hill that Christ has died on. The one to, to purchase and buy our salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we have to not just know this. we got to know it. We've got to know it. We've got to really know it in the depths of our soul that as we realize that our only hope is Christ, that it's, it's not in the general goodness of humanity. If, if, if it's all up to us, we're in trouble. Look to the left and to your right. You're the hope of humanity. And if we realize, if we say, whoa, wait a second, if it's all up to us, that's not going to work. We need, we need a Savior. Well, what a thought. That if we know it, <laughs> then we need to know it. It needs to go soul deep to the idea that we start asking ourselves, have I forgotten? Have I forgotten that I've, ma I've made for another kingdom? Have I forgotten that I've made for the true king? Have I forgotten that this life on this earth is but a hand breath? It's brief. It's a vapor that comes and goes. Have I forgotten that he's king of kings and lord of lords? Have I forgotten that I'm designed for eternity? Have I forgotten that this is not my home? That we're here on, on a short, borrowed time. That we're here to steward what God has given us. To pour out to others. So I encourage, I ask, I plead. Would you come before God with this idea and ask him, Lord, drive this soul deep. May I know deeply know to the point that it shapes my life that you and you alone have come to save. You and you alone will come to restore. And may that shape me and move me. Now, some of you at this point of the message might be thinking, well, but wait a second, pastor, you might be wondering, but my work is in technology. Some of you might be coming from uh, vocations and workers. Well, wait a second, but my work is in public policy. Or I have a position of authority, whether it's, it's in a company or, or in different arenas of local or national government. Some of you might think, wait a second, my work is to help help people. Pastor, are you saying that my work doesn't matter? Are you saying that the only real work in this world is, is reserved for kind of the, the, the professional religious clergy types? Pastor, are you saying that you're the only one that's going about the work that really matters? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Some of you might have heard the phrase, uh, don't be so heavenly minded, ever heard this? Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Kind of this idea that, man, if our heads are too far in the clouds, if we're too caught up with the things of eternity and blind to the problems of today, then what good are we? <laughs> don't be blind to the things going on around us in our life, in our world, in our neighborhoods, in our families. Get your head in the game kind of a statement, isn't it? Don't be so heavenly minded that you have no earthly good. Now, I think we could flip that phrase right on its head. Unless, unless you are heavenly minded, you won't be of true earthly good. Amen. That unless, you're, unless you're so confident and so sure of what God has already declared to be true, unless we are heavenly minded, we won't be equipped to be earthly good. So this is what I mean. That your vocation, your work, no matter what it is, whether you're 
whether you're a stay-at-home mom seeking to care for your children, whether you're a CEO of a company taking care of dozens or hundreds of employees, whether your work is in public policy, whether you're a firefighter or, or a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse, whether you're a contractor, whatever you do, your work is not designed for you. It's designed for others. And we take a close look at this verse, this idea that, verse 10, that God is coming again, that he will right all wrongs, and the ball is ultimately in his court. Do you know what that gives you and I for our vocations, our work? It gives us at least two things, purpose and resilience, both and knowing, 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 knowing that another final, ultimate you catastrophe is coming. God will return. He will right every wrong. He will heal the world. And all of those who are, have faith in Christ are wrapped up into that happy ending. If that is true, and you know that, this is how that gives you purpose for whatever you do in your vocation or your work or your life. Do you know why? One example. Let's say you're a nurse. And every single day you go to a hospital or you go to a clinic. And the goal is to help people who are not doing well to be well or to, to increase in a measure of wellness. Did you know, dear Christian nurse, dear nurse, that any measure of well-being you can help someone else have is, is an, it's an illustration, it's an example, it's a snapshot of the true and final wholeness and well-being that will come at his second coming. That what you are experiencing in a tiny little snippet is a little image of what we are fully and finally designed for. That gives your work purpose. It, it writes your work into a larger story. You're wrapped up into this story. That God will, God will ultimately do that work. And in a small measure, he has designed you and I to take our giftedness and training and our work and our, wherever we are to serve others and to bless others and to be a small, tiny example of what God will ultimately and finally do. There's a reason it's so moving when you get stories in the medical world of people who are, who are going through challenges and they get better, they heal. There, there's a reason for celebration in that. Did you know that the soul, the soul in that moment is tapping into a larger story? That that is ultimately an image of this second and final coming. All will be restored. It gives us a profound sense of purpose. So this idea that God is coming again, it doesn't degrade, it doesn't downplay the role of all of the vocations and the work that you have. It honors them, it lifts them up. It sends you to work, it sends you to your daily life with a sense of purpose and meaning that you're part of something far, far, far bigger than you possibly know. It both gives us purpose, but it also gives us resilience. It gives us grit. It gives Christians a unique ability to be realistic about the challenge of this, of this world, but to not be beaten down and destroyed. This is what I mean. If, if our hope to heal the world is in your hands and my hands, we ought to be very anxious very quickly. <laughs> That it, Lord, if, if the hope to heal the world's in my hands, if I mess something up, if I get something wrong, that's not just a failure for me. It's a cosmic failure. If it's all up to us, let's just say, for thought experiment, let's erase God from the picture. Let's say he doesn't exist. Then every failure for us, humanity, to do right and when we do wrong, that's a reason for cosmic discouragement. 
if it's all up to us, but if it's all up to God, if he is the one that will restore. That means every setback that you and I face, we're not surprised by it. We know this world's broken, and we're not crushed by it because we know the end of the story. It gives you a sense of resilience. It gives you a sense of grit to go through difficult and challenging times. And this, my friends, this is reason for joy. We might ask, how in the world, <laughs> on a Sunday like today, the Sunday in Advent where we're supposed to be joyful, we're supposed to celebrate, and we are in the midst of a challenging year, a challenging season. And the reason for joy has got to outweigh the depth of our discouragement, my friends, only the Christian gospel. Only the Christian gospel can plumb the depths of our discouragement to pull us out. Only the Christian gospel has the resources enough to help us navigate through these seasons. We do have reason for joy. Not as if we're, we've got our heads in the sands uh, like an ostrich, just blind to what's going on around us. Again, we don't celebrate for the difficult times. We celebrate in difficult times. Why? Because your king has come to save. And your king is coming again to rule and to reign. And if, if I was to summarize these two verses in a sentence, I, it's hard to improve on what has already been written and sung. I think what this passage is showing us and telling us and urging us to do is joy to the world. Your Savior reigns. That's the hope of this season. That's the hope of this passage. That's what we stir our hearts to remember in this season of Advent. Because we need it, don't we? We need a kind of hope that goes much deeper than twinkling lights, much deeper than bulbs and presents. We need a hope that the sweet voices of Frank Sinatra's can't touch. We need a hope that only God can touch. We need a reason for joy that only God can bring. So friends, I would encourage you this Christmas season, decorate your homes, throw on the twinkly lights, but then look past them. Look past the twinkly lights to the manger. Look through the manger to the cross and then look through the cross to the sky in his second coming. And may it stir your hearts to joy. Joy to the world. Our Savior reigns. Let's pray. Father, we, Lord, we need this. We need this. We need this sense of joy and hope that only you can provide. So, Lord, I, I pray for all who are listening to this message, wherever we are, whatever state of mind or state of heart we're in, I pray that by your Spirit you would deeply and profoundly encourage us. Lord, I pray for those who are going through seasons of difficulty, of loneliness, isolation, fear, uh, short on resources. Lord, I pray that you would prove just how much a rock you are to us. Show us, Lord. Impress it to our souls that it shapes our lives, that you and you alone are reason to rejoice. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org